Morning church. It's so, well, I am loud. Um, It's so great to be back here speaking in front of a congregation rather than just to a camera, no matter how restricted it is. It is really great just to see your faces. I appreciate you're not going to be able to smile at me, but if you think I'm saying something that you like, just nod a bit or make your eyes pop or something just so I know that you're there. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul and I'm one of the pastors here at Central Vineyard. Today, I'm kicking off a new series on the greatest and most challenging sermon of them all, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps Jesus' most well-known discourse. You could almost say that it's famous. There are people who have literally never opened up a Bible and read it, but would still have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been discussed and praised by many as it contains some of the most famous teachings in human history. Yet despite its so-called fame, it's often one of the most misunderstood of teachings. Many, regardless of their belief or background, think of the Sermon on the Mount as pie-in-the-sky platitudes, a list of things to aim for but never achieve. Or maybe a list of things to either beat someone else up or even yourself up with, to say you're just not good enough. The author and theologian Scott McKnight wrote, the Sermon on the Mount is the moral portrait of Jesus's own people. But because this portrait doesn't square with the church, this sermon turns from instruction to indictment. And sadly, this is true. Because we measure ourselves against it and think of it as a list of virtues and qualifications, we often feel indicted by it. But that way of approaching the Sermon on the Mount could not be further from the purpose and message of the teaching all of which will become clear as we unpack this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, in detail over the coming months. So, how do we frame the Sermon on the Mount? If it isn't a list of things that we score ourselves, or worse, others against, then what is it? To answer that question, then we need to see the context of the Sermon on the Mount as it is in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount starts at chapter 5, goes through 6 and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. But many try and pull those three chapters out, almost like it's a separate narrative or a separate book on its own, rather than a portion of a book. You can't teach, or at least you shouldn't teach, on chapters 5 to 7 without keeping an eye on the other 25 chapters of Matthew. It's all right, I did the maths, it is another 25. So, so to do so will mean risk losing its meaning as it's part of the whole narrative, the whole story presented by the gospel of Matthew. So what is that story? Let's go to just before our verses for today. Let's look at Matthew 4. Verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the 
kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The story is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching about and proclaiming the kingdom of God, or as Matthew often refers to it, the kingdom of heaven. You will see these terms used interchangeably throughout Matthew, but they are effectively the same thing. Just a side note for you, you Bible geeks out there, it's believed that the kingdom of heaven was used by Matthew because Matthew was really aiming his gospel towards Jewish believers. It was primarily for a Jewish audience. And therefore, the phrase kingdom of heaven would have been far more acceptable than kingdom of God, which is obviously using the name Yahweh, which the Jews would not have been able to accept quite so easily. Anyway, side note aside. So Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God and the multitudes, the crowds who are following him, they still don't get it. They are thinking about the kingdom of God being about the restoration of the time of the king of David and the king of Solomon. That's about overthrowing the Romans about conquest and glory and power and military might and victory. But that isn't what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is about heaven touching earth. I was tempted to go into the Hillsong song at that point, but I'll, I'll spare you from that. The story is about the restoration of creation, about all things made new. And it's about a totally different way of being human. So Jesus needs to teach them just how radically different the kingdom of God is, how it's this upside down kingdom to the one that they are imagining. And so we come to Matthew 5 verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and, and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Jesus is about to teach his disciples, his followers and the crowd what the kingdom of God is really like. What does it look like? The pastor, author, and teacher, John Mark Homer, describes the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the kingdom of God. A manifesto is defined as a public declaration of policy and aims. So Jesus is publicly declaring this is what the kingdom of God is all about. So with that in mind, Fasten your seatbelts as we jump in. I'm going to go back to verse 1 and read it all in context. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed 
are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This list is often referred to as the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin Beati, which comes from the original Greek, makarios. Did you like the accent there? Now, the word makarios is a really hard word to translate into English, as there isn't really any direct translation. The best attempts are a combination of blessed, blessings, or happy. But that doesn't really capture it. Tom Wright's original translation in his For Everyone series used wonderful news, as in wonderful news for the mourners. But again, it doesn't really capture it. The best comparison for the word makarios is like the word congratulations that you would often see on a greeting card. Or if you were greeting a friend who had something great to celebrate, like, Macarius, on the birth of your child, you must be so happy and blessed by God. It carries undertones of, I so wish I was you right now. So with that context, Jesus lists eight types of people that he is saying, congratulations to. And it is an odd list. It's not what you would expect. Macarius to the poor in spirit, those who mourn, to the meek, those who hunger or thirst for righteousness. People hearing this would have thought, I think you've been out in the sun too long, Jesus. Let's be clear. It's not a good list. You would not go to a funeral and say to a loved one, congratulations on the death of your husband. Or say to a friend, you're so lucky that you have no power or control. You're just so meek. Congrats. Despite the Beatitudes being so well known, I think they are quite possibly one of the most misunderstood of Jesus' teachings. Some commentators do theological gymnastics to try and portray the Beatitudes as virtues to strive for, to portray these virtues and qualities, to try and adopt them. Now, that's kind of possible for those qualities in the second half of the list. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. They sound really virtuous, right? Although it's not that simple. And more on that in a bit. But the poor in spirit are just that. Those that are in spiritual poverty. The Greek word used for poor here means abject poverty. Those barely living hand to mouth. They are on the brink of starvation. Even when you apply that to spirituality, that is not a good thing. 
Dallas Willard refers to it as spiritual zeros who have absolutely nothing to offer. It's not a place to strive to be and absolutely not a place to be congratulated on. Poverty is terrible, whether it's physical or spiritual. So I can't be reading this right. If I believe Jesus wants me to be in spiritual poverty in order to enter the kingdom of God. Or that Jesus wants me in constant mourning or to be weak and powerless. I don't know about you, but that's not the Jesus I know. So I must be reading it wrong. Even those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, that's not a virtue. The Greek righteousness here, dikaiosune, is referring to right relationship with God, others, the earth, and even themselves. So to be hungering and thirsting for that right relationship means that they don't have right relationship with God, others, the earth, or themselves. In other words, they are a mess, and they really don't have it all together. It's the single mother who is an addict and has tried so many times to get clean. She has lost her kids to foster care. She desperately wants to get clean and get her kids back, but she just can't. She is a mess. That is what to hunger and thirst for righteousness means. The Jesus I know is not saying that is a good thing that we should be striving to be in that position. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the second half of the eight blessings could be viewed from our modern standpoint to be virtues. And another geeky point, in the Greek, they really are positioned differently in a literary sense from the first four. But even then, although they are virtues, like being a peacemaker, pure in heart and merciful, they would not have been seen as virtues in first century Israel, Judea, Palestine. For example, a peacemaker was effectively a traitor, someone who was not willing to fight for the cause to overthrow the evil Roman Empire. So where does this leave us? If these are not virtues, then what are they? Are they commands? They don't read like commands. At no point does Jesus say, I tell you the truth, you must always be in mourning, or you must be a complete mess. It doesn't mean that we aren't a complete mess, but he's not telling us to go out and become a mess. So not commands then. Well, maybe they are timeless truths, as some have suggested. But that doesn't hold up either. Mourners are not already being comforted despite appearances. Do the meek always inherit the earth? Actually, no. If anything, it's the opposite. The meek and the weak do not inherit the earth. 90% of the time, it's the rich the powerful. 
those with contacts in the right places and are willing to do absolutely anything to succeed. Do the merciful always receive mercy? Turn on the news and you have your answer to that. So no, these are not a list of timeless truths. So what is it? What is this list? Remember what I said at the beginning. Read the Sermon of the Mount with the lens of the complete narrative of Matthew. In fact, the complete story of the entire Bible. But trust me, that's way too much for me to go into right now. If you are interested, though, please do reach out either to myself or Michelle Newstead, and we'll talk to you about some vineyard theology courses that might be of interest to you. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Read this list and the entire Sermon on the Mount with the lens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim, to enact, and to put into practice. And the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. What works for a human kingdom is the opposite in the kingdom of God. In a human kingdom, then the Beatitudes would read like this. Congrats to those who are spiritually rich. Congrats to those who have never had a loved one die. Congrats to those who are strong, rich, and powerful. You're so lucky. Congrats to those who have right relationships with everyone, who've got it all together and everybody loves. Congrats to the winners who see an opportunity and go for it, no matter the impact on others. After all, winner takes all. Congrats to those who define their own truth. You will never be wrong. And behind closed doors, you can do what you want. Congrats to those who go along with the crowd and are willing to fight to the death for their cause. You will be a hero. Congrats to those who are never on the unpopular side of anything because popularity is everything. When viewed like that, you can see how radical and upside down the Beatitudes are. God's list is the complete opposite of those that you would see for a human kingdom, our kingdom. So, I'm hovering around coming into land. Still got a way to go, but stick with me. So, I want to make two closing points from the Beatitudes. First of all, everyone is welcome. The kingdom of God is good news. It's the gospel. Everyone is welcome, especially the least, the sad, the weak, the despised, those who are a complete mess, those who don't feel qualified for anything, who feel nothing goes their way, those who never catch a break. Good news. Makarios, you are welcome in the kingdom of God. Congrats. There isn't a price to enter that you cannot afford to pay or a Herculean task that you just can't perform, 
or a list of virtues that you have to have just to qualify. You don't have to do anything to enter except show up. Accept the invitation that is free to you but priceless in every way and ask to come in. Welcome. And here is the thing. In the kingdom of God, there is no sadness, only joy. No one trodden down on or are worthy. No deceitfulness, only truth. No punishment, only kindness. No isolation, everyone in right relationship. No war and violence, only peace. No death, only life. No persecution, only acceptance. No hate, only love. Just as God intended in the beginning. Wow. I can't wait. We will be truly blessed. How long, though, do I need to wait for this kingdom of God? Which leads to the final point. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for some future state for these beatitudes, these statements, to be true. My favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, put it this way about these statements. They are announcing a new state of affairs, a new reality which is in the process of bursting into the world. They are declaring that something that wasn't previously the case is now going to be. That the life of heaven, which had seemed so distant and unreal, is in the process of coming true on earth. Here in the vineyard, we say the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. We see the kingdom of God breaking in when we see someone get healed when we pray for them. But not yet when some who get, who get prayed for do not get healed. So does this mean that we can just ignore all those Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, after all, if there's no entry criteria, then does it matter whether we follow the promises of God now, whether we follow Jesus' teaching? Of course it matters. We play a part in the coming of the kingdom of God now. Now that we are in the kingdom, we are to live with the power of the Holy Spirit by the rules of that kingdom. Not to be saved or to be allowed into the kingdom, but because we are saved, because we are already in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. The qualities we see in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are the green shoots of that new creation. In relation to this, Tom Wright says the following. What Jesus is saying is, now that I'm here, God's new world is coming to birth. And once you realize that, you'll see that these are the habits of the heart which anticipate that new world here and now. Tom goes on to say, these qualities, purity of heart, mercy, and so on, are not, so to speak, things you have to do to earn a reward, a payment, 
nor are they merely the rules of conduct laid down for new converts to follow, rules that some today might perceive as somewhat arbitrary. They are in themselves the signs of life, the language of life, the life of new creation, the life of new covenant, the life which Jesus came to bring. So how are we to respond to this? Well, it depends. If you are yet to accept Jesus' priceless invitation, free of charge, then why not do so today? There is no criteria for entry other than saying that Jesus is Lord and accepting the free gift he has given us all. All are welcome. There is no specific ritual or process you need to follow to accept this invitation into the kingdom of God, but we find it helps to say a simple prayer. So if you want to accept Jesus' invitation today, then, then please ask in for prayer in the chat online uh, and someone will help guide you through that or contact us via the website. Or if you're in the room and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then come and speak to me or anyone you've seen up here afterwards and we'll, we'll talk it through with you and pray through with you. If you've already accepted Jesus as Lord, then you can respond today by asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you areas in your life that need his touch. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you live by the rules of the kingdom, by this manifesto of the kingdom of God. That is the Sermon on the Mount. And to pray that God's kingdom will come and God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Before I close in prayer, let me finish with a last quote by my favorite theologian. No guess, no, no prizes for guessing who that is. The life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now that the point of the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes in particular, they are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that is, in fact, the right way up. As I ask the, the worship team to, to come back to the stage, we'll just pray. Father, I ask that all in this room and those listening will begin to live by the rule of your kingdom, here and now. I pray that by drawing closer to you, Jesus, by the help of the Holy Spirit, they will become more like you. That is our desire, to be more like you, Jesus. We want to see your kingdom come. Your will be done. And we so want to be a part of your 
great story. Actors in the drama, written, directed by the Almighty God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.